water comes from the interstitial fluids, which are present in your skin. And there are salt channels in the bottom of the sweat gland that basically open and that drives the water because the water will follow the salt um, into the secretory portion of the gland. And then again, that salt will move up again because channels are being activated along the, the sort of the trajectory of the gland. Um, and water follows that salt all the way up onto the skin surface and then it evaporates and that's what pulls us off. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Summer is on its way, and for many of us, that means warm times. If you live in places like the American South, it's more than warm. It's shirt sticking, I'll shoot you all over your back, sweat dripping down your face when you go outside. It's disgusting. All this sweating is gross. It's also kind of embarrassing to be that person dripping slowly on the bus or in the conference room. But all that sweat is a sign of evolution at work. And here to talk about where we got our sweaty skins is Yana Kambarov, a developmental biologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Yana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking about where sweat comes from, not in the evolutionary sense, but in the physical coming out your skin sense. What kind of sweat glands do we have and how are they different from each other? So humans are uh, a bit different than most other mammals. So um, in human skin, what you find predominantly are a type of sweat gland called the eccrine sweat gland, whose job is to basically use a salt gradient to drive water onto the surface of the skin. And the heat from our bodies essentially drives the vaporization of that water, which as it evaporates, pulls us off. So there's another type of gland. These are your, your sort of water secreting, um, you know, have a little bit of salt in the water glands. There's another type of gland that is found in a very limited distribution in the human body called the apocrine gland, uh, which uh, secretes kind of a more fatty protein filled um, liquid. And those glands are very restricted in their localization. They're, for example, that they're what you find in your armpits, for example. Whereas the eccrine sweat glands are found all over the body and they're thermoregulatory, used for cooling us off. And you mentioned that other mammals sweat as well. I mean, they, they don't sweat like, like we do really, because, you know, you've never seen sweat beating the brow of your cat. <laughs> um, how do they sweat? <laughs> So, I mean, so a lot of other mammals do sweat, but they don't generally sweat the way that we do. So the eccrine gland, which is the main um, thermoregulatory gland in humans, um, is only really found um, in sort of the, the soles of the feet and the palms of the paws, I guess I would say, in, in most mammals. And that's where initially these little organs evolved. And in, in fact, we have them also. And these, these glands tend to respond not so much to thermoregulatory um, stimuli, but they respond to sort of in your fight or flight response. So when you get nervous, your hands get clammy because the sweat glands have become activated. And most other mammals use those glands essentially for traction. So when the, you're, you're walking on a surface or you're touching that surface, how much friction you have with that surface and how much grip you have depends on how much water you're making from those glands on the bottom of the, of the soles and the palms. So that said, the sweat Although you may not see it on your cat, like you might have seen it on a horse, 
when a horse lathers up, right? And and there are in in some mammals there are um, not eccrine sweat glands throughout the body, but apocrine glands, the glands that in humans you'll find in these very restricted regions, for example, like in the armpit. Um, and in a horse, for example, those glands are all over the body. Um, very, very tiny mammals spend a lot of their time, like the, like a mouse, spend their time essentially trying to keep warm because the smaller you are, kind of the less volume you have and the more surface area you have to lose heat. So the, the volume is what produces the heat. The surface area is what you lose heat from. So a mice spends a lot of its time trying to keep warm. It has fur to also insulate it um, from, from cold and warm. So it doesn't need to worry about getting sweaty when it's hot out. <laughs> uh, that's right. So mice, for example, they will they will do a little bit of panting. They'll you know they'll, they have behaviors that uh, keep them. They they essentially will burrow, hide themselves from heat. Um, but effectively, you know the uh, the heat load for a mouse is is less of a problem than for a bigger mammal like a rhinoceros, right? So now you'll notice on a rhinoceros. You know, there's a lot of a lot of mammals. For example, like an elephant, really, really big mammal, right? It has those big ears, right? That that can that provide extra surface area. They're highly vascularized to lose heat. Elephants will also spend a lot of time spraying themselves with, uh, you know, kind of muddy water. Again, you're you're going to increase evaporation off the surface of the skin as if you have water to evaporate. So, so how do other mammals? sort of dump body heat, essentially, right? So um, other mammals, horses, other ungulates, like goats, they sweat, but they use a different type of gland than we do. And it doesn't secrete so much water as much as it secretes uh, a lot of lipids and a lot of proteins and, and, and some water. Okay? So it's a much less watery sweat. That's why you see a horse lather up. Okay? The main mechanism, though, for many mammals is panting, which is, again, evaporative cooling. But instead of that evaporative cooling taking place on the surface of the skin like it does in humans, it takes place inside sort of your respiratory surfaces. Okay, So inside the nasal passages, inside your upper respiratory tract. So this is, you know, in the snout of a horse. Uh, dogs are actually interesting because dogs pant through their mouths. And that's where actually you get... Um, they have a lot of evaporation that happens there as opposed to they have an, like in addition to, I guess, to, to their noses. Um, so you also have a lot of mammals that adopt behaviors um, like spreading mud all over themselves uh, in order to cool themselves off. Um, a lot of mammals have also like elephants, made big ears, big, they've added sort of surface area uh, off of which they can lose heat uh, when they need to. So there's a lot of different, um, both behavioral um, and um, mechanistic um, types of cooling that have been uh, adopted by other by other species. What's what's different about humans, and, and it's something that we actually share with our closest primate relatives, which are the great apes, um, and also the old world monkeys. So these are the monkeys of Africa and Asia. Um, that is that we. Instead of having sweat, these eccrine sweat glands just on the bottoms of our feet and on the palms of our hands, these eccrine glands are everywhere. But what makes humans different is that we really rely on these organs. We don't really rely on panting so much. We can pant. It's not, I would say, probably as effective as it is in other species because, you know, we've, we've, um, 
for example, like, you know, we, we have a reduced snout. Um, that said, uh, we are unique in that um, we almost, this is really the main mechanism. Sweating first is the main mechanism we have to lose body heat. Whereas for a chimp, you know, a chimp is going to pant to cool off. Um, it's also going to spend a lot of time sort of keeping itself out of direct sunlight right, when it can. Now, you've been mentioning a lot of mammals, and I love the idea. Is this a, is this a mammalian trait? Is a sweat, is sweat a mammal thing? Like Absolutely. hair and milk? <laughs> yes. Yes. It is one of the inventions of mammals. So um, eccrine sweat glands are an invention of mammals. There's a lot of changes in, uh, in the skin and the organs that make up that, that are derived essentially from the embryonic ectoderm, which among other things gives rise to the skin, which also are defining traits of mammals, hair, sweat glands, um, actually even the, the specialized teeth that we have are, which they're also another, they're uh, an organ type that's very closely developmentally related to sweat glands and hair follicles. That's also an innovation of mammals. So the, the, the embryonic ectoderm and the, the skin have really, um, there are a lot of very mammalian specific traits that accompanied the evolution of mammalian skin. And how did you get into studying sweat glands? Was this through studying kind of skin or have you always had a thing for sweat? <laughs> no, <laughs> I've not always had a thing for sweat. Although I, I mean, somebody must. More now. Someone might. Yeah. So my, um, I was very lucky. So when I was finishing, when I was an undergraduate, um, I, I'd been interested in evolutionary biology for a long time, um, and just in human history, and and then, and as a consequence, and in, in became interested in evolution. Um, and then, um, but I studied developmental biology while I was an undergraduate, um, and then went off to graduate school um, again, studying developmental biology, um, and. For my postdoc, which was sort of the, the position you take after you finish graduate school, you still go and you work in somebody else's lab to acquire even more training before you start your own lab. Um, and I was really had worked a lot in developmental biology, but, you know, I had this deep interest in evolutionary biology. Um, and, you know, the reason you become a developmental biologist is because you understand that there are these common principles and common molecular networks that are active in a fly, in a frog, in a chicken, and in a human. And that by understanding how they work in a chicken or in a fly, you will gain insight into how these same molecular pathways are redeployed to build a human. So it's, it's all coming sort of from this interest in evolution. And I was, for my postdoc, because um, generally what you do as a postdoc is what you're going to start your own lab on. And uh, when I was uh, going to start my postdoc, I went to talk to the man who became my postdoctoral advisor, a guy named Cliff Tabin, who's a developmental and evolutionary biologist. And I look and I told him, look, I, you know, when I was wanted to, uh, when I started out in science, I really want to study evolutionary biology, but I just, I thought no one would pay me to do this. So instead, I thought, I'm just going to do developmental <laughs> biology because I get to do a little bit of evolution. I understand that that's really the common thread here. But um, that's what I'm going to do. And now that I'm becoming a postdoc, you know, I really want to go back to evolutionary biology. And in fact, when I was an undergrad, I was a 
an anthropology major, and I was also a molecular biology major. So I really wanted to combine these two disciplines, understand evolution at a molecular level. And fortunately, by the time I was a postdoc and in the lab where I was going in the Tabin lab, uh, this was this was these were two disciplines that you could really bring together. And there were enough resources and tools and knowledge to start exploring the genetic basis for evolution. Now, Cliff had been having lunch uh, with a very good friend of his called Dan Lieberman, who was an anthropologist and who ended up actually being my co-mentor as a postdoc. And the two of them had been sort of kicking around this idea. You know, Cliff is a developmental biologist, Dan is an anthropologist, and Dan was saying, hey, do you think we know enough about genetics at this point to sort of try and get at these, you know, like these human-specific traits? Like, for example, you know, I'm a runner. Dan likes to run a lot, and he he is very interested in the biomechanics of human evolution and and, and various capabilities that humans have developed. And he under, appreciated that that humans have this. As a runner, you appreciate that humans have a really remarkable capacity to dump heat through sweating, and then we do it through sweating. And you know, you don't really see this as a mechanism um, in the way that we employ it used in other mammals. And so he sort of brought this to the table. Can we understand this? And so I came to Cliff saying, Hey, I want to do a postdoc in evolutionary biology and in developmental biology. This is what I really always wanted to do. And he said, well, you know, there's this question we've been interested in. Do you think you could figure it out? That, you know, this, how did humans evolve their remarkable thermoregulatory sweating abilities? And that's basically where it all started. I was interested in an area of research and there was a question that was sitting there. And when I thought about it, I realized actually recently giving a talk somewhere and I realized that, you know, you know that you're working on something obvious when you can draw it with stick figures because, you know, I was drawing a relation. Here's a macaque, here's a chimp, here's a human. I was drawing stick figures to show the relationship, the phylogeny, you know, sort of the evolutionary relationship between these three species. And I could, there are few human traits that are so blatant and you don't, and you can be a terrible artist like I am and still depict them with a stick figure. And all I needed to do was draw little hairs on the macaque and the chimp and just draw a hair on the top of a human's head. And you could see, wow, one of the most striking differences between humans and other primates is this naked appearance of our skin, which is absolutely tied to how we dump body heat. The fact that we need to sweat. And in order to sweat, you've got to lose your fur and you've got to have a lot of sweat glands. That's what makes it efficient. So it was a, an, a, an obvious trait to study, a very defining trait to study. Yeah, and, and it was it's interesting to think about, you know, we, we call ourselves sometimes the naked apes. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because sweat glands, they take up a lot of real estate, right? Like they, they take up a lot of space. Um, so what have you kind of found about how our skin has changed over time to kind of make space for all these sweat glands. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is that, you know, right. So humans are, are often called the naked ape, but in fact, we're not naked. So when um, I was a postdoc, we did a survey of hair and sweat gland traits, just of skin traits in macaques, chimpanzees and humans. And it, it had been, there, there had been some argument, um, back and forth uh, about, you know, our humans are, you know, people keep saying humans are hairless. How hairless are we? Are we hairless? Or, you know, why do we, why do we look so different? 
And actually what we found, um, and it, the fact was that there was very little, um, there was limited data on the topic. And so we went out and we just did our own survey. And what we found was that we could show, look, if you look at the hair density of a macaque compared to that of a, a human, macaques are much hairier than humans. They have many more hair follicles per unit area than a human does. But when you look at, when you now compare a human and a chimp, which realizes Actually, we have the same number of hair follicles per unit area as a chimpanzee. We have the same hair density as a chimpanzee. So the reason we look hairless is not because we've lost our hair, but rather because our hair is peach fuzz. Most of it is peach fuzz, right? It's been miniaturized. Um, and in terms of real estate, if you look something else that's very different um, in human skin is if you look at the sweat gland density of a macaque, Eckerin's sweat gland density of a macaque and compare that to of a chimpanzee, it's the same. Okay. But if you look at that sweat gland density of a human compared to a macaque or a chimp, on average, it's 10 times higher. So in the same little area, humans have packed 10 times more sweat glands than a chimpanzee. But the tricky thing is we've also at the same time made our hair tiny. So the real estate that's available for sweat glands is now increased right? Because there's less space taken up by hair, even though it's the same number of hairs. Though now I'm thinking of, you know, some of the, you know, more hirsute people I know, and, you know, hashtag not all humans. (laughs) (laughs) Still, I think, I think it's very difficult um, for a human to compete with a chimpanzee in terms of a, a fur coat. Although there are there are human conditions. Um, There's the the which are quite hirsute, right? There's a lot of hair, but those are, um, there is, they're, they're due to genetic mutations. Um, and, um, in, in terms of sort of when, when, you know, I'll say, oh, you know, my, my husband has a lot of, you know, is a lot hairier than I am. Um, that, those differences, you'll notice, you know, at puberty, like you notice that the arm, the hair on the, on the, top of your arms, all of a sudden you start seeing these kind of darker pigmented hairs that really in puberty, you see changes in a lot of the hair patterns in humans. So those, those are responses essentially to sex hormones coming on. Um, and they cause some of the hair follicles to transdifferentiate from peach fuzz to these more rapidly cycling pigmented um, hair follicles, which, you know, will give some men chest hair for example, among other things. I, I always thought that was what you got if you ate your broccoli as a child. <laughs> <laughs> My parents have lied to me. <laughs> yeah, parents have lied to me. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned, okay, so we have 10 times as many sweat glands. That is just mind-boggling um, that we have so many. And our our hairs have become very kind of small and fine. Do we know... Is this like a, a chicken or egg kind of thing? Do we know what came first? So that's a, I mean, there are a lot of, um, you know, so, so one widely, so this, so this is, this is something I work on. This is something that my lab works on. It's something that I started working on um, as a postdoc when I was start, you know, being interested in this question. It was very difficult to separate the two traits from each other, right? Because in order to, you know, the sweat glands, thermoregulatory organs, they, they're what secrete the water. We evaporate the water. This is what cools us off, right? But in order for this to, 
you know, in order to have efficient evaporation, you want lots of airflow and you want your heat exchange to be happening at the surface that you're heating. And what you're heating is the skin. You're not heating your hair follicles. So having fur will decrease the, the rates of evaporation um, off of the skin. And so um, and a number of people have proposed um, over a long period of time that these two traits, having lots of sweat glands and depending on them to cool off, and getting rid of fur by just miniaturizing the individual hairs are, are have co-evolved now, you know, that, that, but they could be controlled by the same genetic mechanism. They could be controlled by separate genetic mechanisms, right? Because they're two different traits. Um, but from an anthropological perspective, it was thought that they could have co-evolved. There have, Darwin, for example, proposed that uh, in terms of the sort of man's nakedness, um, that this was sexual selection coming into play. So that's another theory that's been proposed and for, for loss of fur in humans. Other people have proposed, um, for example, that this would change parasitic load on the skin uh, because parasites would have less stuff to attach themselves to, less hair to attach themselves to. Um, so, but from a, you know, from a, in order to address this question, what my lab has spent um, a fair bit of time doing now, and what I also spent time doing um, as a, as a postdoc was to try and understand the genetic pathways that during development control these two traits. What controls hair size and what controls sweat gland density? And what are, and how are these two? Because they get built in the same tissue. They both get built in the skin. What is the relation? What are the genetic pathways? Um, what is the relationship between these two organs developmentally? And what are the genetic pathways that control that relationship? Um, and we don't quite have the answer right now, um, but we think we have a, we think we're on the right track. We have started by understanding how variation in these traits is controlled in other species like mice. That's really once now that we, we sort of have a handle on these genetic pathways. Um, both, both based on work we've done and also decades of research by other labs, um, that, that has now allowed us to look for um, which and how those pathways, genetic pathways, have been tweaked. Um, where are there differences between the human genome and the genomes of other primates? And once you know what those changes are, you can test what their functional importance is, what do they do? What do the human specific changes in these genetic pathways cause? And you can test that essentially by actually even modeling it like we do in mice. Um, and that will allow you to make inferences whether, um, you know, the, uh, you're talking about multiple changes, um, a single change that could affect both traits perhaps. Um, and, and sort of that will also allow you to, in part, figure out the timing, which in order to figure out the timing, you need to know the genetics. You need to, you, because other than that, you're just sort of guessing, right? You're, you're kind of making up stuff. Uh, once you know the genetics, you, you can, you, you go back and you say, okay, this mutation is present, you know, it's something that is found in all humans. Is it found in Denisovans and Neanderthals? These are extinct um, members of our, um, geez, are they subspecies at this point? They're uh, extinct members of the genus Homo, um, for which we now have a DNA sequence, and that can give you a date of, you know, is this a 400, you know, 400,000 year old mutation or is it younger? Um, and then you can see, you know, so you can, once you know the genetics, 
you can figure out the age to some extent. Um, and so we're trying to get at the genetics right now in order to address exactly this question. Which came first? Did we lose hair first? And then it was convenient. Oh, look, now you can. We lost hair for some reason. You know, we lost our, not hair. Oh, we miniaturized our hair for some reason. And now that sort of gave the opportunity for when a mutation occurred that caused sweat gland density to increase, it could be adaptive, right? Because now you could have it even more efficient heat loss from the heat surface. Um, or was it a single genetic change that caused both effects? And then you have selection actually acting on both traits for the same reason at the same time. All of this can be addressed to the genetics. And you've actually been modeling this in mice. Does this involve getting giving mice really sweaty palms? Like, yeah. <laughs> how do you model this in mice? <laughs> so the the I mean the mouse is is a is a, a a really remarkable model system. So there's, um, because you can do some genetic manipulation in the mouse very easily. Um, um, they are very closely related to humans, actually. The mice are the, the group of animals that's most closely related to primates. Um, and so there's a lot of commonality um, and uh, shared uh, development and morphogenesis between our species. Um, and so we can manipulate the mouse uh, genome. We can introduce, uh, we can delete genes. We can, we can make humanized mice where we actually take a human uh, mutation and replace what's normally in the mouse with the human version. Um, and because they're so closely related, we can observe, okay, um, what happens to sweat gland number in mouse, in mouse feet? Uh, when we actually see very well that mice are very good at, you know, we've even done this for, um, uh, for uh, mutations that have been selected just within humans. So different, you know, in a human population, uh, we can take that, that has a mutation that's at a very high frequency. We can model this in the mouse and ask, okay, what is the, what is the, what are the traits that are affected by this mutation? Because it's much easier to analyze this in the mouse than it is in a human. Um, so we literally yeah, make mice with sweaty feet. <laughs> Do they leave little, little teeny sweaty footprints when they? They don't because they live on little wood chips. You've got it. You've got to get that video of like, you know, walking across a little piece of paper, a little sweaty footprints. So yeah. cute. <laughs> now, we've mentioned, you know, some people are hairier than others. Uh, some people also sweat more or less than other people. And one of the things I found really fascinating in one of our previous conversations is that sweat gland activity can actually be trained a little bit and you're kind of sweat training your kids. Can you talk about sweat training sort of? <laughs> well, sweat training is really just exposing them to the real world. <laughs> so, um, so, um, you know, within reason, obviously. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I live in a temperate environment and uh, so I, by no means should you stick your kids out when it's super, super hot outside and wish them the best of luck and start sweating. So there are studies, but so all of this goes back to, you know, we know that people uh, do change the thresholds at which they start to sweat uh, when they exercise. So uh, people who, who um, you know, you sort of adapt yourself to physical, you adapt yourself to physical activity and the, the strains that are, that are um, put on the body. That said, there are also studies um, from a classical uh, sweat gland biologist called Yaz Kuno from the 1930s and the 1940s, um, in which he reported, um, this is a Japanese scientist who studied 
did very extensive work um, characterizing human sweating abilities um, and just human sweat glands. Um, and he described um, that during the first two years of life, he noticed a pattern that during the first two years of life, depending on where um, the environment where a child was raised, if that environment was hot and humid or dry and humid, um, that that would dictate how many sweat glands actually became activated in the child. So, um, you know, so the, the lesson, you know, I guess in, for me from that was that, you know, if I kept my kids in air conditioning all the time, they would sort of, their their sweat glands would sort of say, well, you know, the body would sort of say, you know, you, you don't need that many. You're good. Because at the end of the day, you know, like losing water costs you something, right? So if you don't need to activate these glands, why bother, right? But what that means is that, you know, after two two years of life, let's say, you you sort of, your body has decided how many glands will become active. And beyond that, that that's all you have. And all you, you can do beyond that is adjust how much water you will produce out of each sweat gland, but you can't adjust how many glands will be activated. So the environment during those first two years of life is really, seems to be, at least based on these studies, really important for determining kind of the total number of active sweat glands that you have the potential to activate. And so in my case, that means, you know, unless it's completely sweltering outside, I really like try to keep the AC off whenever possible, just to give them, give them that, give them a chance, give the sweat glands a chance, because you never know, right? Now, you mentioned it's only during the first two years of life. So for those of us raised in air conditioning, are we, mm-hmm. are we totally screwed? You mentioned that exercise can train them. No, because your body, I mean, you know, it's, you, you're, your body's quite clever, right? So it, it, it can adapt. It, it realizes that if there's going to be more strain, it, it can adjust the amount of output that's coming out of the sweat gland, right? So, and, and it can also adjust how, how soon will you start sweating? At what point will the thermostat in your brain sit, say, okay, kick up this, we got to cool off, right? And so you can acclimate yourself. If your body is used to this, it knows that there's going to be you're you're kind of getting ready to produce a lot of heat or you you know it sort of starts to trigger that that it turns on you know the thermostat is always on and it's just it's threshold for when the sweating will kick in and how much sweat you'll produce will accommodate ba- based on um based on what your body's needs are it's just that you're there is a limit, right? There's always a physiological limit. At the end of the day, there's only so much sweat that a sweat gland can produce, right? Um, and you know, if you've only got the ten sweat glands that are activated that can be activated, that's it. That's all you have to work with, right? So, um, but the, but so there's a limit according to these these studies from the 1930s and 40s um, in terms of okay, number of sweat glands that can be activated will be decided by a certain age. And beyond that, you will modulate the activity of that sweat glands that are activatable. But that's as far as you'll go. So you're not screwed. You're just, you, I mean, you're not. <laughs> you, you will adjust. Well, Yana, thank you so much. This has been amazing and sweaty. <laughs> Wonderful. Great. If you want to learn more about Yana Kambarov and her work, we've got links up at scienceforthepeople.ca. Now, sweat is one thing but stink is another. What gives our bodies their special B.O.? Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire. 
We might now have kind of an evolutionary handle on why we sweat, but the sweat that beads your brow and the sweat that gives you pit stains, those are different things. Or at least they definitely smell different. <laughs> What's going on? Here to tell us why our pits stink is Gavin Thomas, a microbiologist at the University of York. Gavin, thank you so much for being here with us. That's okay. Now, we've been introduced at this point to eccrine glands, um, but you work primarily with apocrine glands or apocrine glands. Can you talk a little bit about the basics of, is it apocrine? Is it apocrine? Yeah, I call them apocrine glands. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So, so, so as you know, with the eccrine glands, they're all over the body and they're thought to be involved in thermoregulation and they secrete this kind of salty water. Um, these apocrine glands are, are very different and they're restricted to a very small number of places in the body. Um, so in our underarms, around our pubic area, uh, and also around the areoli of, of breasts in females. And they secrete um, a very different kind of liquid than the eccrine glands. So it's a kind of milky, uh, sticky fluid which contains um, a range of more, much more complex chemicals. So um, it includes things like precursors for, for fatty acids, thiols, and steroids, which we know make up uh, the chemicals that we find in, in body odor. Now, you mentioned that um, apocrine glands, they're found around the areoli of the nipples in females. Are they not found around male nipples at all? Uh, good question. I'm sure they probably are, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about that. I, I demand gender equality in, in body stink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. I'm sure, I'm sure they are, yes. Uh, now, you mentioned that these are kind of, it's kind of this milky fluid. We don't really think of it that way. Does it get diluted by other, I mean, you know, you don't look at your underarm and see milky <laughs> substances, no, right? I think because the, the volumes are very small. I mean, these, um, we're only making very small amounts of this material and it gets secreted directly onto the hair, into the hair follicle, um, to get onto the hair. So, it's more like the sebaceous glands. So the eccrine glands, they basically, the liquid comes directly out on the skin, but the apocrine glands are coming out onto the hair. So you don't, you don't see a liquid in the same sense that you wouldn't see, uh, when you, when you, when you're sweating. You see, you can see sweat, um, accumulating on your skin. Uh, you don't see the apocrine gland sweat in the same way because it's much, much lower, lower levels. And you mentioned that the, apocrine glands produce um, thiols and steroids, um, fatty acid precursors. Do these things stink? Is that what smells? Okay, so, so, so this is where the interesting microbiology comes in. So, so it, it turns out when people have actually measured and taken swabs of what's in people's underarms, there are a range of these, these chemicals you can detect there. Um, including the thiols, which I'll talk more about because we think they're the most potent components of body odor. But it looks as if there's a number of precursors of these molecules that get secreted from the apocrine gland, uh, which in themselves don't have any smell. So they're odorless precursors that are made by us. And it's the action of microbes on these precursors that turns them into smelly chemicals that we recognize as body odor. And 
I found this very fascinating when I first kind of discovered this topic. Um, you're a microbiologist. You are not, you know, a physiologist, uh, not someone who naturally studies sweat. Did you like come into this with a weird fascination with human BO? Like what, what got you into the microbes that produce body odor? Yeah. So it was, it was, um, through an indirect route. So, so basically I, mainly work on how bacteria take up small molecules into their cells. And the proteins that do this are things that sit in the membrane, which is the layer that sits around all cells, um, and they're called transport proteins, and they catalyze the movement of a chemical from the outside to the inside, and sometimes they pump things out from the inside to the outside. So they control the way that cells interact with their environment. And it was through talking to... Um, uh, a colleague of the person I collaborate with in Unilever, who said, "Ah, I've got this. I've got this. I've got this colleague who works on body odor, and he, he needs he needs somebody who knows about transport." So it was from that initial interaction that I went down and, and spoke to Unilever and found out about this about this project about which about which I knew absolutely nothing beforehand. It really intrigued me because, as a microbiologist, fundamentally, I'm a microbiologist. I'm interested in all funky microbes and what they do. And this was really cool because it was a process that was clearly intimately related to the evolution of humans and mammals and other animals. Um, but it was a molecule, it was a chemical process and a chemical that was being made by the microbes that live on our body. And that was intriguingly interesting to me. So we, we started a project there in Unilever with a PhD student called Daniel Borden, and he basically started to figure out in detail what the microbes were that were doing this. And then, because we're interested in transporters, figuring out how the molecule gets transported into the cell uh, before it then gets split to create the um, body odor chemical. So were you slightly offended that you were talking with a colleague and he was like, you know, you made me think about body odor? Like, was that... <laughs> well, I never really thought about it before. Although, again, <laughs> although, although, actually, I remember going down on the day and actually being a bit nervous, right? Because I was basically pitching to try and get some funding for this research. And, and of course, another thing about apocrine sweat and the apocrine gland that's interesting and is very different to equine sweat is that you only really make the apocrine sweat when you are nervous or stressed or sexually excited. So this is an apocrine secretion that only really starts at puberty. So it does suggest there is something to do with, um, sexual maturity or, or, or stress-based situations. And actually, I remember going down there on that day and, of course, being very, very stressed and nervous about this presentation I was doing. I could definitely whiff a bit of BO on myself. So I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm, trying to pitch, I'm pitching to these people in front of solve and stop people smelling a body odor. And I, was, I had some stress-induced body odor myself. So that's another important element of this. So, again, we don't really make these molecules all the time. Um, if you go out for a run, you don't necessarily make the molecules that you associate with body odor. You'll, you'll sweat a lot if you need to cool down. But um, the apocrine sweat is only made under these different uh, particular conditions. Well, maybe it ended up helping your pitch. Now, you actually worked with a company for this. You worked with Unilever, um, which I think probably many people have heard of. It like Unilever makes pretty much about like half the body products on the market. Um, and I think many people might kind of raise an eyebrow at that. A lot of people kind of think of companies that make the products we use as not necessarily 
having our best interests at heart. Uh, they might not really know how these research collaborations work. Can you talk through how you form a research collaboration with a company like this? Yeah, no, I'd love to. I mean, th- this has been a really, a really great experience for me. And, and actually, Unilever, they're a big company. Um, what really surprised me when I went down there is that they do have some serious scientific research going with lots of it, really good, excellent cutting edge science that they're doing to help them understand kind of long term, um, scientific challenges that might help the company. So it's not just about very, very short term gains. They, they really have the, a research vision to do to do big ambitious bits of research to figure out um, fundamental things sitting around biology. And in the United Kingdom, there's, there's um, I work in an area of, of, of microbiology that tends to be funded by a thing called the Biology and Biotechnology Research Council, the BBSRC, and they're particularly keen on, on scientists applying fundamental knowledge to something that helps uh, UK industry. So, um, We've been able to work with Unilever to try and leverage money from the government to work on this project, which is really fundamental science. And ultimately, there may well be benefits for the company in the end, uh, which they might capture capture through a patent. So we, we've, we've we named inventors on a patent um, where we characterised the transporter, which was very exciting. Um, so it's developed through the kind of continued scientific interests of the people in the company. And again, sometimes you forget that the, the people in the company are also scientists. They've got PhDs. They're really interested in science still. And they, they, they want to solve these interesting questions. So it's been a, it's been a fantastic collaboration of over a decade where we've managed to raise uh, or, or win external funding from BBSSC on a couple of occasions now to try and take the project and develop the project forward. So and that means the money comes from the government. The money comes from the government, from the BBSRC, and um, Unilever make small contributions to that to kind of top up um, at the level of the, the PhD studentships and also the grants, the larger grants that fund postdoctoral researchers to work on the project in York. And so Unilever wanted a microbiologist who was stressed at the time <laughs> because <laughs> it turns out that, as you mentioned, the stuff that we produce from our apocrine glands are not, it's not smelly, right? It's the bacteria that actually live on us. Which bacteria are, are to blame for this? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the first things that Dan tried to figure out in his project. So, um, we now think it's, uh, some particular species of staphylococci. Um, so staphylococci probably, if you if you've heard of any Staphylococcus, it's an organism called Staphylococcus aureus, um, because this is generally uh, causes disease in in people who are immunocompromised. Uh, this is a bacterium that normally lives in the nasal cavity. A lot of people carry Staph aureus around, and it's in the news because there are different antibiotic resistant forms of Staph aureus. So this, so this is the same kind of overall family as the Staph aureus, but there are lots of different species within the Staphylococci. Um, many of which are not linked to disease at all. And we found one called Staphylococcus hominis, uh, appropriate name, hominis, uh, which was first identified in humans and is known to be a component of the underarm microbiota. And we were able to show that this particular species and two of the related species of Staphylococci uh, are able to produce the most pungent component of body odor, this molecule called 
um, 3M3SH, which is a thiol. So, um, yeah, we were able to identify which particular species did this. Staph aureus, this, this other Staphylococcus, does not do this, does not make this chemical. It's only a restricted number of species of Staphylococci which appear to live in the underarm that are able to do this. And the chemical that they produce, it, it has the word thiol in it, um, and that means that contains sulfur, correct? Is that what gives it its its reek? Exactly, exactly. So, so thiols are really important molecules in, in, in smelling because um, they are so pungent that sulfur gives them all gives them very very strong uh, smells and, and all kinds of different smells are associated with different thiols but we use them a lot in biology so I don't, I don't know if in the US if you have uh, natural gas in the UK it's spiked with a, a thiol so actually if there's a gas leak you can smell the gas because methane is odorless but they spike it with a thiol so there's a recognizable smell of of, of the natural gas, which is this thiol. And again, thiols are present in, in Cabernet Sauvignon, smells of wine, all kinds of different smells of different thiols. So they're, they're a really, really large family of very, very um, pungent molecules that, that are volatile. That's, a, that's an important thing. They easily volatilize, and you, can, uh, you have odor detectors in your nose that can smell these molecules at very, very low concentrations. I don't know how I feel knowing that they're in my wine. I'm going to be smelling my wine very differently well, now. These, some of these lovely grapey, lovely grapefruity smells and some of these grapefruit aromas, they, these are all thiols. Um, so the chemistry of this is, is it usually there are, there are many, many people who know, know the chemistry of all these molecules, but it's fascinating. And again, the slightest change in, in the overall structure of the molecule can completely change the smell of this molecule in the way that we detect it so um there are molecules that are very similar to the molecule this this body odor thiol um that are, that are very pleasant aromas so that's um something very particular about the the way that we we, we sense these different molecules and, and what we associate with them now you found this your laboratory found this bacteria staphylococcus hominis um and they produce this smelly chemical that we now associate with body odor how how do they do that is it because of their diet <laughs> so that's a great question and again this is what we've been trying to figure out in the last couple of years so so as i said that there's the the body secretes this precursor which has no smell and a little bit is known about how that is made and how it's secreted and there's a uh, there's a transporter actually that's been identified that's involved in the secretion of this molecule from our underarm axilla cells uh, into the environment where the microbes live. And the first thing we were able to figure out is how the microbes take up this molecule. So we discovered the transporter that sits in the membrane that allows them to take up this molecule. And working with some colleagues at the University of Oxford, uh, Simon Newstead, we were able to solve the structure of that transporter and really understand exactly how it recognizes the precursor. But the interesting thing was we then found that actually when you look across all of these different staphylococci, they all have the transporter. So even the staph aureus that I mentioned before, and there's another species of staphylococcus called staphylococcus epidermidis, which is all over our skin, uh, which also, again, is, is a commensal part of our microbiota. These abundant staph have the transporter as well, but they don't make body odor. So clearly the, trans the presence of the transporter alone didn't explain why only these very small number of species were able to make 
the smelly molecule. So then we looked harder to try and see if we can identify or, or correlate the occurrence of a particular gene with the ability to make or not make uh, the molecule. And we discovered a novel enzyme that we call the BO lyase, which is the enzyme that can actually, which we've now shown uh, biochemically, can split this precursor molecule into the odorous style. Um, so we know what the enzyme is now, uh, which is what we're writing up at the moment for publication. So did you excited. deliberately name it BO lyase? We did, yeah. <laughs> so it's related to a family of other lyases, and uh, we thought we'd call it a BO lyase just to distinguish it <laughs> from the others. <laughs> and this is really wild to me because these these bacteria, they take in compounds that do not smell, and then they basically poop out what amounts to our body odor with the help of this enzyme. Does this, what, what does this mean? Like these, these bacteria live on our skin and produce our body odor. This is just kind of mind boggling to me. Does this mean that there's a purpose here? Well, yes, as a, as a, Using the word purpose is difficult, but um, a function. I mean, I mean the, 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 so so why might why might they do this, right? So what do the bacteria gain from this process? And they do gain a small amount of food. So when they split this molecule, they break it down into two other small molecules that they can use as food. But we don't think the bugs that are doing enough of this conversion. They're not eating enough of the precursor really for this to be a huge amount of food. However, on the other hand, we know that evolution favors an organism that might be able to access maybe one or two percent more food than another species. Over time, that's going to be more competitive. So maybe a very, very small additional source of food is this kind of selection that's, that's uh, made these bugs have this enzyme and, and stay living in the underarm. But it may be that this, this is more of a, a symbiosis, a commensalism between those microbes and man. So we know that the, the staphylococci also use other um, chemicals that come from the body. So a lot of the fats that are secreted and the fatty acids that are secreted into the underarm from the sebaceous glands, the microbes use as food and they can't make their own in fact. So they kind of, they become reliant on the human body to get these molecules. So there's a Clearly, this is an old relationship. They've been they've been around here for a long, long time. Um, and again, either they get a direct benefit from making this molecule and it's gone on to have secondary functions, um, or there's been a direct selection for the ability to make these molecules because there's been some kind of evolutionary advantage at some time in the ancient history of man to be able to make these volatile, smelly molecules. <laughs> is is I, I'm trying to figure out if that's supposed to be comforting or if it's kind of like the evolutionary side effects of like lower back pain in humans. <laughs> yeah, so, so 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 I mean this may just be now a relic, right, of 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 human evolution because um but it might not be. I mean how much of a relic might it be? We have we have no idea really. Um we've been trying to date based on the distribution of species which contain this enzyme, uh, we know that they form a kind of, they're all close cousins to each other. And we've tried to do an experiment working with a 
microbiologist at the University of St Andrews called Matthew Holden, to try and figure out how old uh, the kind of common ancestor of those Staphylococci are that make the body odor. And it's, and it's quite old. So initially we thought this might go back to kind of Neanderthal man or something, but it goes way back to um, the radiation of the great apes. So this is, this is an old process. And we know that gorillas and other higher apes have apocrine glands. We just don't know enough about their microbiology to know if they have the same species, if they're making the same molecules. There's just nobody's done that research. Um, there's huge gaps in our knowledge when we go outside of man. I mean, even in man, we have we don't know enough about this process. So we're starting from things we know for really, really, really sure about the microbes and the chemical reactions that they catalyze, and then we're speculating on some uh, using the best methods that we can to try and figure out how old this process might be. And I was also really struck by when reading your research on this, our our skin microbially speaking, is kind of like a desert. Like there's not a lot to eat <laughs> um, for for enterprising microbes. We're kind of covered in Staphylococcus epidermidus. Um, um, but the we ha- we're talking about Staphyl- uh, Staphylococcus hominis, and those are only in the apocrine glands. And the apocrine glands are only in our pits and our genital regions. And those areas, if you're the size of a microbe, those are worlds away from each other. They're really, really far. And we don't start making things like body odor until we are teenagers. How do we get these bacteria? Like, when do they take up residence in our pits? That's a a, a great question. And and I I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, um, I, I think transfer between the underarm and the genitals isn't isn't difficult to imagine how that can happen. That's easily done by transfer onto the hands and touching parts of the body. But but where they originally come from, and, and as you say, that really important point, if if the selection for the bugs is the fact that they eat this stuff, uh, but then we don't make it until we go through puberty, um, are those bugs there all the time? Um, so again, we don't understand enough about the underarm of, of prepubescent children to know if hominis is there. Um, hominis can can live on the on the skin as well, but it tends to tends to be far more in the underarm. Which, as you said, you you you, you compare the skin to a desert, which I think is a, is a good analogy to make. But if you were going to do that, you could maybe say that the underarm was a forest um, or or a rainforest, right? Because it's it's a highly humid, chemically rich, safe environment actually. So it's a great place for microbes to live. It's kind of an oasis in the desert. Right, and um, and there's there's a really complex microflora of bugs living in there. And I also wanted to just ask this question: You've been studying these underarm bacteria. Where do you get your samples? Do you like sample the pits of the people in the lab? <laughs> no, we haven't done that. We, but we have. This is this is the advantage of working with with Unilever. So Unilever do have um, access to. Um, Staphylococci swabs that they've taken from uh, people uh, in Liverpool, actually, which is where they have their headquarters, their research headquarters at a place called Port Sunlight. So we can access their collection of strains. Um, so we have a we have a, a good collection now of different human isolates of hominis. Uh, we do find that the amount of body odor they produce does slightly vary across these different strains. We don't understand why that is yet. Um, 
but yeah, we do. We haven't yet taken samples from our own. We could do, but we haven't. We haven't done that. We've, we've been able to use uh, our industrial pilots to get those strains. I, I have to say that that would have been the first thing I would have done. I would have absolutely just gone there. <laughs> um, now. You mentioned that the amount of body odor some of these bacterial strains produce um, kind of varies. But also, I mean, we all know that everybody's body odor smells slightly different. Is this because of the bacteria? Are there are there other chemicals that are like in the mix producing some of the different kinds of stank? Yes. So, so I've mentioned thiols because we're primarily interested in thiols at the moment and they are the most pungent component but actually there's good evidence that fatty volatile fatty acids are also a major component of body odor and actually there's more of those um more different types of those that are made and it's the combination of all of these molecules that will give a person their particular odor so that presumably relates to two things it relates to which precursors the underarm secretes because that's where these molecules come from and it depends on which microbes are living in the underarm as to which biotransformations can happen and which molecules will be made so there's a really really interesting study that shows that in different populations of humans they have different body odor and that's to do with genetic differences in humans in the protein in a gene called abcc11 and that encodes a transporter you see, I'm, I'm obsessed by, by transporters. That encodes a transporter in, in our underarm that secretes the precursor. So actually, um, populations in, in the Far East, certain populations, they have a mutation in ABCC11, which means they don't make the precursors. So actually, their body odor is entirely different to, say, an, a typical Caucasian person who has a, a working copy of this gene, and they secrete the precursor. So, so there's a human genetic element to this, Certainly, and um, and then the microbiology, the microbes itself, must clearly shape uh, the intensity and diversity of molecules that are made based on the repertoire of precursors that get secreted. And you have been working with a company on this. I mean, I assume that the long-term goal here is, you know, better, more scientific deodorants. Um, so, how can knowing how these bacteria produce body odor like how is how can that help kind of combat body odor because you know the reality is maybe it served a function in the past but people aren't aren't really fans of it now no no i mean i mean yeah our research i, I find it fascinating that this process occurs but as i say in, in the 21st century most people want to get rid of body odor so i mean i think the um i think the way our research can help the company is really by if we if we have a really detailed molecular understanding of what enzyme catalyzes this reaction, then it's not impossible to imagine you could develop a molecule or small molecule that might inhibit that. So you could, and, th and this would be quite an important breakthrough in, in deodorants because at the moment deodorants are quite general. You apply an antimicrobial agent and and you and you inhibit the growth of of many microbes in the underarm. A bit like a broad spectrum antibiotic does, right? If you make an analogy to, to the way we use antibiotics, they will kill lots of microbes. Actually, it'd be better to use a narrow spectrum antibiotic where you only kill or you only inhibit the growth of the microbe uh, that's going to cause disease. And, and in this case, you could inhibit the particular species of Staphylococci 
but cause body odor. So having a much more targeted uh, inhibitor, I think, is probably uh, the approach that the company would be interested in, in pursuing. But um, um, yes. It's a wild idea. I think most of us, when we put on our deodorant in the morning, probably don't think about the fact that we're we're killing the microbes in our underarms. <laughs> yeah. So, so some, okay, I'm not an expert in exactly what is in these, in the, in these different products, but I mean, some of them actually try and prevent the amount of sweating. Uh, some of the components reduce the amount of sweating itself. And then others reduce the amount of microbial growth uh, that happens. And you mentioned that, you know, these days, most people want to get rid of body odor. Has your, has your work made you feel differently about, you're a body odor. Are you? Are you? You know, a body odor fan now. <laughs> well, now, now I know where it comes from. As a microbiologist, yes, I'm intrinsically more attracted to it than I was in the past. But uh, it hasn't really changed the way that the way that we behave. I mean, it, it is slightly problematic working with this molecule because it is so so pungent, and uh, so we have to work in fume hoods all the time so we don't uh, contaminate our our colleagues. Uh, work and um, I remember once we did a. I mean, these molecules. Just to give you an idea of how of how pungent these molecules are. We did a we did an outreach event last year, and there's a there's an event in York called Pint of Science, and we did an event in in a pub, and we got people to um, we gave them a variety of different smells which we put on on sticks, and they would they would smell them, and they had to write down what smell they associated with them, and we thought we'd actually include the real. This, this molecule, this, this style that we were working on. And actually, the first thing that was really interesting was that, is that most people actually directly said this was the smell of body odor, which for us was a really good confirmation that this, this really is an important component of body odor. But the, to contain the smell, basically, we had to put it inside a, a plastic box, inside a plastic box, inside a sealed plastic box. And even then, you could smell this stuff. So um, it's incredibly, incredibly pungent and, and uh and we have to keep it keep it controlled. So, so, so it just makes you think the amount of this stuff that we make is tiny, tiny amounts of this stuff, but it's enough to um, for you to be able to smell and probably smell uh, probably smell at a distance. Mm-hmm. If we think about what the use of these molecules are in other mammals, then they're involved in um, in some some pack animals. They have microbially derived volatile chemicals that are used by the pact for them to communicate with each other. So they're clearly working at, at a distance. Uh, they're able to move through the air and be detected at very low concentrations by their, by their friends. So does that mean that your, your lab is known as like the BO lab? Is that? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but we try, we try and keep it quiet. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gavin, for taking on this topic. I would like to say that this interview stank, but it didn't. So thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you would like to know more about Gavin Thomas and his work, we've got links up at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, don't be a stinker. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a friendly review, follow us on social media, and if you're really thrilled to learn where your body odor comes from, maybe drop us a few dollars in a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. 
The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.